So Kelly's going to read for us chapter 13. So if you want to get open to chapter 13, it's the very beginning of your Bible. And we're going to continue our story of a man named Abram. Yeah, read the whole chapter. Thank you. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Can you preach too? Just flip it up. There you go. Thank you. Checking. Okay. So, reading from God's Word, Genesis chapter 13, starting in verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At the time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise. Walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you. I'm going to pray. Holy Spirit, we need your help um, for lots of different reasons. We, we need you to help us to understand what it is you want to say to us this morning. 
and understanding's not enough, so we also need you to help us to believe it. And we know that believing without loving and doing is falling short, and so, Spirit, help us to do all of those things, to understand and believe and love and do, live your word, to see what you want us to see about ourselves as you examine us through your word and help us to see better who you are as we look into your word. And so do that work and do it in a way, God, that helps all of my friends to encounter you for wherever they are right now. Lord, I know some of my friends are are suffering and hurting and are in trials, and I pray that you would meet them through this passage exactly where they're at. And others in this room are are living victorious, joyful lives in you, filled with faith, and I pray that you would just build their faith further this morning. So Lord, do what only you can do, and that is to cut into our hearts um, in a a supernatural way. I can't do that. Um, None of us can do that, and so we need you to do it. And so do that in us, I ask, in Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, so last week we began a story, a journey from a guy named Abram in chapter 13, or in chapter 12. And Abram, we found out, was a guy who was basically out, a a, a pagan, worshiping false gods. And out of nowhere, God just comes cutting and crashing into his life and reveals himself to Abram. And right out of the gate, he just says, Abram, I'm going to bless you. And he says, I'm going to bless you with land. I'm going to bless your offspring. And I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to others. And what I, what I shared last week was that as we work our way now through these next 13 chapters of Genesis that are all about the life of Abram, what we're going to see is that although it's about Abram, it's more about Abram's God than it really is about Abram. And this is very important to us because Abram's God is our God, right? We're going to find Abraham's God is our God, and there's a link there. And so you have a scripture memory card. If you didn't get one, there's a little table in the back. I encourage you to memorize uh, Galatians, I think it's in chapter 2, where it says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So it's a blessing that comes through Abraham to us as Gentiles, and it's the blessing of Christ who was hung on a tree so that we don't have to be. Christ who was cursed so we don't have to be cursed. So this story, although we can look at it and go ask ancient history, well, it's about really about our God and the blessings that we get and the things that we learn and benefit from because of Abraham and because of Christ who comes through the line of Abraham. And so I said last week, really what we're going to see in, in this life of Abraham is we're going to see the fabulous grace of God and the faith that that grace produces. That's really, I think, a banner we can put over these, these chapters about Abraham. That's really about Abraham's, the, the grace that Abraham receives because everything that God does in Abraham's life really is fabulous grace. They're just promises that God pours out on him. And, and for Abraham, his response to that grace is going to be faith. And so really we're going to see God work and Abraham respond in faith. God revealing himself and Abraham responding in faith, which is so true for us, right? God God reveals himself and he works in our lives. And what do we do? We respond in faith. We believe and we live differently as a result. And so we pick up our story this morning with Abram, Sarai, and Lot. Lot is Abram's nephew, right? Abram's brother died, and he had a son, Lot. And so Abram basically takes Lot as his son. So if you read the story, you really got to think of it more as a father and son than as an uncle and a nephew. But they are now returning from Egypt. 
And the author here really makes it very clear that Abram is returning to the place where everything began or to the place of beginning. Do you see that? Let's look at verses 3 and 4 together. It says that he goes to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. So he's making this emphasis that he is going back to where he started. And remember last week, Pharaoh was like, dude, take your wife and go. I don't need plagues. Get out of here. And so he sends Abram on his way, and Abram goes back to this place of his beginning. And the first thing he does when he gets back, it says, is he called upon the name of the Lord. He was calling upon the name of the Lord. Now, I have an idea, and I'll share it in a minute, as to why I think he was calling on the name of the Lord, or what, he, what exactly he was calling on the name of the Lord for. But I think it's good just to share with you my journey this week, as I studied the passage, you can kind of see options. And I can tell you where I landed and why I landed there. Because it does make a difference, I think, in how we interact with this guy named Lot. And what do we learn from Lot? And what do we learn from Abram? So why is Abram calling upon the name of the Lord? Well, some theologians say he's calling on the name of the Lord because he's asking forgiveness. Because he shouldn't have gone to Egypt when the famine hit. He should have stayed in Canaan. And he should have trusted God to provide there. But he didn't. So something he's asking forgiveness. Others say, no, he's asking forgiveness for how he treated his wife. Which, by the way, was really bad. Let's not ever emulate that, man. Like, don't treat your spouse that way. This is wrong. Do not, father, do not fo- follow Father Abraham in his example and how he treated Sarai to save his own skin. So is he there asking forgiveness for that? Maybe. Or maybe he's thanking God for protecting him from Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh could have just said, right? He hasn't killed him, man. He had all the power. There's no reason he had to like, let him go and then let him go with more stuff. So maybe he's thanking God for that. So we don't really really know the reason. For some reason, God doesn't really tell us. He doesn't have Moses include that when he writes this to us. I think what we can conclude wholeheartedly is that calling upon the name of the Lord is a good thing. Right? If you were doing this in your time with God in the morning and you're reading God's word and you get to and he called upon the name of the Lord, I think you would go, all right, Abram's on the right trail. He is calling upon the name of the Lord. And we see in redemptive history all the time people are calling on the name of the Lord. And when they do, it's usually because they want to be rescued, they want to be delivered, and they want to be saved. It's usually when people recognize, I've got a need, and God can meet the need. So I'm going to call upon the one who can meet my need. And so as I was reading this this week, I thought, here's just a little mini sermon. This is like a little mini sermon for my own soul. It is never a bad or wrong time for you to call upon the name of the Lord. (laughs) Never. Never. There are no circumstances, small or big, situations, tall or wide, where you will go wrong by calling upon the name of the Lord. Listen, God never rolls his eyes when you call upon his name. He doesn't look at your situation and go, come on, Matt. (laughs) He doesn't. It's always good. In fact, we know he invites us to call upon him, right? We studied Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the Lord. It's a beckoning. It's an invitation for us to come to him. In Matthew 11, we see Jesus saying, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, that I may give you rest. In Romans 10, we know that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So God, this is what God loves. It's like he, he, he beckons us. He wants us to come to him. And so I just want to ask you this morning, what is it that you need to be delivered from? Is there something you just want to be rescued from? What what do you need to have God do that you need to call on him in order to meet that need? What what is in front of you that you look at and go, that's impossible? 
There's no way that's ever going to happen. I need help in that. That is an opportunity to call upon the name of the Lord. So I just want to call, challenge us, encourage you this morning, whether you need provision or healing or guidance or comfort, whatever you need, follow Abram. Call upon the name of the Lord. Ask him to do in you and through you the things that are in front of you. You think that's impossible. Call upon his name. But I think it's likely that Abram is calling upon the name of the Lord here specifically because he has a problem. And so I don't think it's any coincidence. If you look at verse 4, it ends with, And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And then the next thing we hear about is the situation between Lot and Abram. So what's the situation with Lot and Abram? What is it? It's a conflict. Okay, what's the conflict over? Why, why is there a conflict between Lot and Abram? Say it. Yeah, they got too much stuff and not enough land. They're, they're too blessed and there's not enough space to take care of all their stuff. It's like you get too many things and you can't fit them in your garage, Right? you got to figure out what you're going to do. So he's faced with a crisis. So I think it's very possible that Abram was calling out on the name of the Lord to say, oh, what do I do about this crisis? I don't know what to do. we got too much stuff, and there's strife. There's conflict within our family. Any of you guys ever experienced conflict in your family? I know never that happens. There's conflict. And the conflict arose because they don't have enough space. Now, you got to notice something. I think this is key. This is the opposite problem Abram had in chapter 12. What was his problem in chapter 12? Speak to me. <laughs> There's a famine. Yeah, so in chapter 12, he faces famine. In chapter 13, he faces too much. It's like the total extreme. So within his very brief introduction to this God who's now revealed himself to him that he knows very little about, he is faced with famine, and now he's faced with a lot of stuff. Now, the reason I think these are meant to be held in contrast to one another is because the same word is used to describe the famine that is used to describe his riches. So look back with me at chapter 12, and you're going to see in verse 10, it says that the famine was severe in the land. See the word severe? So the famine was severe. Now look at chapter 13, verse 2. Now Abram was very rich in livestock. That word rich is the same word as the word severe. You guys see that? It's the exact same Hebrew word. So in essence, it's a comparison between what do you do when you have nothing and what do you do when you have too little? How does that impact your faith? Now the word that maybe helps us, maybe, because it can be... In the Hebrew, it can come out in different forms, but the word heavy is a good word. So you could say that when you talk about the famine, that the famine was heavy in the land, and that Abram was very heavy in livestock. Does that make sense? So the famine was heavy in chapter 12. Now, now Abram is facing a heavy livestock, heavy good blessing. So the word heavy is used to describe how bad the famine was, and now it's being used to describe how great the blessing was that Abram had. But I think God has Moses intentionally uses two words when he's writing it together so we would compare and contrast these trials. Any of us identify with these trials? See, Abram's riches came, became a trial and a strife because of the conflict. Now, most of the time, you and I don't have fights over having too much money or too much stuff. 
But I think we can find ourselves dangerously comfortable and self-sufficient when we have too much stuff. I think both can be a trial, right? When I need stuff, I can be in trial, and I know I'm in trial. The danger of plenty of heavy and riches is we don't recognize it as a trial. We think, we think everything is fine. So I think it's good to take a minute and just consider that he had this trial because of the strife. And we may not have strife, but we think we should still recognize that we can face trials in life because we have everything we need. I think it's easy for us to not succeed in the trial of blessing as much as we can succeed in our faith in the trial of need. See, riches, I think, are an equally feth faith-testing trial. They test us. Will you still call upon the name of the Lord when you have everything? Do you still call upon the name of the Lord when everything is going your way? When you're blessed, do we continue to call upon the name of the Lord? So I think there could be a connection here between this passage and last week's passage in that we, we compare and contrast the faith of Abram to American faith. See, American faith, that's kind of what we're living in, doesn't really need God to do anything. Most of us, that's how we live. My savings account is full. Retirement is taken care of. The fridge, the freezer, and the grocery store are fully stocked. Thank goodness. I turn the faucet for fresh water on demand. My house is in order. My cars run. And if they break down, I have the money and savings to fix them. Doctors and medicine can handle my health, and my cost is covered by health care. See, American faith doesn't really need to call on the name of the Lord. Whereas I think Abram faith, at least in chapter 12, and now here we find him in 13 with blessing on his hand, causes him, forces him to stop and say, God, I need you. I need your help. You've got to intervene. Because Abram felt his need. So I guess when I read this this week, I looked at his situation and I thought of it as an opportunity from God for us to ask ourselves, in my time of heavy blessing, do I believe God is my provider? He's the provider, and so I still call on him. Do I call upon the name of the Lord with the same intensity and consistency when I have heavy abundance as I do when I have heavy need? You follow? I think that's what we're being asked here by God. Like, look at Abram. Look at his situation. Do you call upon him with the same desperate need when everything is fine in your life as you do when you find yourself in trial? Well, Abram calls out on the name of the Lord, probably because he needs help from God. And the solution that I think God gives to Abram is to go ahead and just split up. There's too many of you, and there's plenty of land, so split up. And Abram takes the humble road and says, Abram, or says, Lot, you pick first. Go. You, you pick which place that you want to go and live. And so in verse 10, it tells us Lot lifts up his eyes. He sees the Jordan River. He sees beautiful green pastures and, and running water everywhere. And he goes, I'm going there. And so he picks his direction to the east, and he sets out. And God makes it clear here that the direction he's headed is in the direction of Sodom. Dun, 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 dun. 
Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> right? Sodom is bad, and he makes that clear. This is before God's going to destroy Sodom. So he throws that little parentheses in there for us. It's bad. And in verse 13, we're told the men of Sodom are wicked and great sinners against the Lord. So Sodom chooses that direction and heads that way. So this raises questions in my mind. Why did he choose to go that way? If it's such a bad place where he's headed, why would he go in a direction where things are bad? So was it because he didn't know? Did Lot not know? Was he like, hey, it looks green and nice down there. I'm going to head that way. And then when I get there, he, he sees that Sodom's bad. And that's why I says he doesn't really go in. He goes near Sodom. So was he ignorant? Or did Lot know and say, you know what? I'd rather, I'd rather compromise and live with wicked people, but give me the green grass. I'll, I'll take that chance. I'll compromise if I have to, but I need to get to the place where the grass is green and the river is flowing. So which was it? Well, God doesn't really tell us in this story. We're going to get to how his life develops. In, 12, in 13.12, I mentioned, it says he set his tent up. If you look there, 13.12, as far as Sodom. He moved his tent as far as Sodom. So it's like he gets to Sodom and then irk, he puts on the brakes. So there's a hint there, maybe. But then in chapter 14, verse 12, we're going to find out that he dwells in Sodom. And then in 19.1, we're going to find him sitting at the gates of Sodom, meaning he was some kind of a leader, an elder in Sodom. So, so why? Why is he there? Well, some have said he is there because this is, and this preaches really well. It's that slippery slope. First he gets near Sodom, then he goes in Sodom, and now he's actually leading Sodom, which is a great sermon. And I was headed down that road to warn us about the slippery slope of sin. Because it's true. Sin does work that way. But then I decided to see if the New Testament had anything to say about it. Does the New Testament commentate, give me some insight into what's happening in the Old Testament? And lo and behold, it did. And it turned my thinking on its head. So 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6 says this. Sorry, I have to cut into the middle of a sentence, but I'd have to read an awful lot to not. It says this. This is, this is God, how he's going to judge the wicked and then give escape and blessing to people who love him and follow him. So it says, if by turning the cities, God, if God, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Verse 7. And if he rescued righteous Lot, may I just pause for one second, you guys... This I'm, I'm spoiler alert for weeks to come. There's a story coming where God's going to pour down fire and ashes from heaven down onto Sodom and Gomorrah, but Lot's going to escape. So you don't have to come that Sunday. You just know what happened. If you rescued righteous Lot, so righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. So how does God describe Lot? Three times. He's righteous. All right, now, I want to help us read our Bibles. Because there's times when we read righteous and you need to think justified. You can read righteous, and you got to read the context. It could mean Christ has imputed his righteousness to you, and you are holy. You are perfect before God. You've been forgiven of your sins, and you're clothed in his righteousness. There's other times where righteous is used in the New Testament. It's talking about living upright, 
doing the right things that please God. So when I read this, I heard some say, well, this is just talking about his imputed righteousness that he would get from Christ. But when I read what's in the parentheses, it says, for as that righteous man lived among them in that day and how his soul was being tormented. It seems to me like this is not talking so much about him being imputed righteousness as he lived upright in his day and he did the right thing. So I read this and I let this interpret Genesis 13 and I say it seems like Abram or Lot didn't say, I don't care that they're wicked sinners. I just want their land. So I'll just go be a part of them. And if they corrupt me, who cares? I don't think the message here is avoid the slippery slope of Lot. I think Lot goes there knowing or not knowing, but the impact it had on him was that he remained righteous. That even though he was in a place where things were really bad, he remained a righteous man. I think it's right to say that Lot was in the world, but grieved by the world. He was in the world, but greatly distressed by the sexual conduct of the wicked and their lawless deeds. Now, I pray that this describes us. I pray this describes you and me, that we would be able to move closer and closer to the world relationally, yet still be righteous and tormented by the sexual conduct of the wicked and the lawless deeds that we see. Not self-righteous, but tormented. Not thinking we're better or above, but deeply grieved and compassionately moved by the sin that we see in the world around us. That we could be like Lot, as he's described in Second Peter. Especially as we look at our country and how we see things going sexually. We're not headed in a godly direction. And so this is an example for us of how to, how to be that way. We, we need to be in it, but grieved by it. Does that make sense? And I think this is an example for us of, of Lot seemed to have done that. He, he knew what it meant to go there but yet be grieved by what he saw and experienced. So Abram and righteous Lot, according to the story in Genesis, they separate. And then in verse 14, God has another conversation with Abram. And in this conversation, God repeats his earlier promise. So look at verse 14 with me. Chapter 13, verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one could count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. So two promises, land forever and offspring as many as the dust, if you could count it. Nobody in my family likes to dust. Are any of you dusters? If you ever come to our house, just, just don't get a white glove, you'll have a blast. It's a, it's a mess. Everything else is super clean, but dusting doesn't happen. God's looking at Abram going, look, if you could count all the dust on the earth, you're going to have more offspring than that. He's expanding in some ways even the promise he made in chapter 12. He's filling it out for him. It's bigger than I even told you before, Abram. It's vaster. It's going gonna, it's gonna to expand, Abram, the people and the land. The offspring will be as numerous as dust. The land will be as far as you can see from the north to the south to the east to the west. 
And he begins this, and I want you to notice there's only, there's only two commands that God gives Abram in this. And I think these two commands are helpful for Abram and helpful for us. The first command is this. He tells Abram to lift up his eyes. Now, I don't know if this is true or not, but I can almost see Abram, after he tells Lot, you pick where to go, and Lot picks the beautiful land, if his head dropped and he thought, oh, I should have picked first. (laughs) Maybe I shouldn't have punted this decision to Lot. (laughs) Maybe his soul was down. Maybe he was wondering, okay, God, what is going on? I I let him pick first. I thought that was the right thing to do. He's headed now to the land. I know you said you were going to give me this land, but he really picked, like, really, really good land. Now what? And so what does God say? He he lifts up his eyes. He, He lifts up Abram's countenance. And he says, Abram, I want you to lift your eyes and I want you to look. Listen, you and I need God's help if we are going to lift up our eyes and see things the way that God wants us to see them. Do you hear that? If if you're going to see things the way that God wants you to see them, you need his help to lift up your eyes to have his perspective. We need God to move on our hearts So he will lift up our eyes so we will look and see his promises and believe his promises. I don't know if after 28 years now of pastoring, if there is any one thing that is more relevant than this. And for me personally, I don't know if there's anything I struggle more than in this. When when you are tired and weary, and beat down. When you try to make sense of the fact that you tried to do the right thing and it backfired, when you try to take a step forward and it didn't seem to go well, in fact, maybe it just caused more conflict. Maybe you give time and energy and heart to something only to have it end up flopping in front of you. Maybe it's relational struggle or challenge. In all of those I guarantee you that you need God to lift up your eyes to see him and to see what he is doing. And I'll tell you what, when I'm in those situations, I am not looking up. I'm looking down. I'm not looking out. I'm looking in. I'm looking at circumstances, not at God. And that can just downward spiral to depression, to discouragement, to wanting to just give up everything. And God is very clear here as he takes Abram, and I believe he wants to take us this morning and literally lift our chins and say, look up, lift up your eyes and see what God is doing. Church, lift up your eyes, whatever your circumstances are, and look to Jesus and all of his promises of who he is and who he says you are. You need to lift up your eyes and look at who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's doing and what he will do in order for you to be sustained and to have his perspective on the things that are happening in life. Lift up your eyes. Lift them up. Ask others to help you lift them up. Especially when you're in the middle of those trials that aren't trials of prosperity. You need others to help you to lift up your eyes. I can't tell you how many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times either Elspeth or somebody else I know has told me to lift up my eyes. 
Just lift them up. You, you, gotta, you can't look at your circumstances. You've got to lift up your eyes and look at God and look who God is and that God is for you and look at his attributes and look at what he says about you and your relationship with him and cling to that, not to the circumstances that you are walking through the middle of. Lift up your eyes. And then he tells Abram, this is only the second thing he tells Abram to do. Verse 17, he tells him to arise and walk. He says, I want you to arise and I want you to walk. So he wants them to see what God has promised. Look at, look at it. Look at the land, north, south, east, and west. And they said, I also want you to now go walk it. Go experience it. Go take it in. I think there's, a, there's reality here for us. It's one thing for you to see God's promises. It's another thing for us to walk in them. And it's one thing to say, I know God loves me. And that's another thing to have God's love really permeate your heart so you can say, I know God loves me. It's one thing to say, God has forgiven me of my sins, or I know God cares for me more than the birds of the air, so I shouldn't be anxious. But it's another thing to let those promises penetrate your heart and change who you are. And I think in this case, Abraham, why don't you go walk it? Go walk the land. Go see what I've done. Go experience this. I want you to feel and, 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 and think and live out in the land that I told you is yours. And so I say, come on, church, you know what I'm talking about. You know the difference between having the head knowledge of something and having it rock your world and change how you think and feel. For the kids that are here, and probably for me too, look, it's one thing to say, I've got a box of Cheez-Its. It's not for me to get to eat the box of Cheez-Its. Totally different experience. I don't care. I don't want to see it. I want to experience it. I want to take it in. And the same is true for God. All these promises that are in God's word for us, I don't want to just know them I want to take them in. And so I love candy canes at Christmas time. And here's a whole box of sweet tart candy canes. Anybody like candy canes? There they are. They look good. You don't really care, do you? Unless I say I'm going to give you some. Right? And then all of a sudden we care. I don't know whether I should trust somebody to pass these around to the kids. Or not, but especially because I just touched them. So now we're all distracted. Maybe I should just have them take those when we're done today. I don't know. Kids, I know you're here. You're important. So as you hold that candy cane, know that it's not enough just to know about God, you want to know God. It's not enough just to know who he is. You want to know him personally. It's not enough to know facts that he died for your sin. You want to experience the fact that he died for your sins. It's one thing to say truth and to hear truth. It's another thing to have it rock your heart and to bring change and joy and satisfaction to your life. And I think God sends Abram out to walk so he'll experience the promise, not just looking at it from a distance, but go experience the promise. And I think that's what God is doing here for us. Take it in. I think this is why we sing. I think one of the reasons we sing is simply because it helps us to really feel and believe the promises that we know are true. They're true. I want to know they're true. I want to feel their truth. I want their truth to affect how I think and how I live. I want, I want that truth to cut my anxiety and my depression and my discouragement so that I can have life. So God sends Abram on a walk to experience the promise. 
And what does Abram do as a, as a result? Verse 18, what does he build? He builds an altar. So Abram responds by building an altar. He lifts up his eyes. He sees the promise. Then he goes out and he experiences the promise. And then as a result, he builds an altar to the Lord. The only way he could respond to God allowing him to experience the promise was to build an altar. So we're all going to go out today and we're going to build altars together. We don't do that today, do we? But I think there's things we can do and, and should do that express the same heart attitude of Abram. Why did he go build the altar? I think it was his way of saying, God, how amazing is this promise you're making to me? All of this land is mine? He, he walked it? This is amazing. You're, you're, you're an incredible, gracious God. I trust you that you're going to really do what you say you're going to do. You say you're going to do it. I believe you're going to do it. I think all of that is in him building the altar. Whatever that looked like, whatever it was like, all of that was behind. That was what was in his heart when he said, here, God, this is an altar to you. This is my way of expressing to you that I believe your promise, that I love your promise, that I'm going to live my life in light of this promise. And I think the same is true for us. God, God wants to lift up your eyes, have you see his promises, walk in them, and then figure out a way in your own soul to respond to him by saying, yes, I love your promise. I trust your promises. I want to live in the good of your promises. I want to have others join me in enjoying your promises. It's the heart response. And in Abram's case, it was an altar. And in your case, I don't know exactly what it is. Maybe it is simply just expressing that to him. Just telling him. I've said this before that Certain truths come more alive when we speak them out loud. That's why the Psalms, you see, hear the psalmist talking to his own soul. He's, he's speaking things out loud. He's saying, this is true. And I think it's what God is inviting us to do, to join Abram in expressing our, our trust and our joy and our satisfaction in the promises that he has made to us. And so here's how I want to end this morning. I want us to take a couple minutes and I want all of us to write down promises. Jordan already shared one with us this morning. Just so happens that Jordan shared some promises with us from 2 Peter 2, 1. So what you're going to do is you're going to take a couple minutes, and I want you guys to start writing down promises that God has made to you. Or just things you know are true. right? So there's promises I can write down from God's Word. Then there's here are things I know are true. True things God says about who he is. Things that are true about who I am because I am in Christ. And I want you to write them down. I want you to make lists this morning of those. And then we're going to share them. We're going to share them with each other. This is a way of encouraging one another. And Bree is going to type them as fast as she can and put a list on the... No, she's not. No, she's not. No, she's not. Okay, so this is it. We're, we're joining Abram. Abram had a promise made to him. Well, we have tons of promises made to us in God's word. So I want you to start listening. The promises God has made to you, to us, and then things that are just true. What, what's true about who you are? What's true about who God is? I want you to just list them, and then we'll share them in a few minutes.
I hope you're finding this good for your soul. I did this yesterday and it was so good for me. Because the list goes on and on. We could literally spend weeks just turning pages in our Bible going, oh, there's good news. Oh, there's more things to hope for. There's more promises. There's, there's more truth about who I am and who God is. It just keeps going. So I want us to speak them out loud together. I know you guys still have turkey in your stomach. But we're going to wake up. And I want you to share. We're, I, we'll make it like a wave. We'll go around the room. You have to stand up and then everyone's going to go around the room standing and sitting. No, you really don't have to stand. But I do want you to share. I think this is encouraging. The church is meant to encourage each other with truth from, from God and, and who God is. So I want us to do that. We go around. Let's share. Um, Share one, and then when we're done, if there's people that want to share a second one, we'll do that too, okay? There's no, there's no uh, spectators. This is not a spectator sport. You guys hear me? No spectators. You're in the game, so you got to participate. Unless you're terrified of talking out loud, then I give you a pass. All right, so let's, let's go around the room and let's share. Can we start over here? Lydia's going to start, and then Jeff, and then we'll kind of work. Or Jeff can start, and then Lydia, I don't care. Just share, share one, share them nice and loud, and let's just go around. Back row, Justy. Amen. Andrew, you got one? You sure? No, okay, you guys don't, I don't have one. Me, put you on the spot. Go ahead, Dan. Where are we at? McMillan's? Shout them out. Good.
Mark? Make us. Good. Again. Mark stole yours. Mark. Grace, peace. Good. I want to encourage you this week. We're going to begin, if you're, if you're in the Bible reading plan and there is no falling behind, but if, you're, if you've kept up, we'll be in Revelation this week. And so I want to encourage you, as you read Revelation this week, to be looking for promises that God makes in Revelation. And or to look for things that you say, wow, that is just truth. That's life-changing. Because Revelation is full of life-changing truth and grab a hold of it and write it down. I want to end by reading one little section from Revelation, and then we're going to sing together. I want the band to come up, or the singers to join the band, the Alex band. If you want to stand, let's stand. I just want to read this to you. This is at the end of the book of Revelation. There's all kinds of good news, promises in here of what God has in store for us. John writes this, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Truth, promises, good news. Let's sing together.